Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. All right, very good, very good. Well, let's get into our uh, conversation uh, this morning again as we're kind of uh, we're uh, working our way and working, I say that loosely, it's kind of a plotting our way through, uh, through the Sixth Commandment. But, you know, I think it's, it's important to do that because it seems that so many of the uh, issues today, social issues and, and just uh, societal issues and thoughts that people have about how we do our life together really does kind of revolve around the Sixth Commandment. And certainly... We could go back to the first commandment and say, well, you know, really it's all about the first commandment. Who's going to be God? And then how much does God and his word have a legitimate claim on how we live our life? And so, again, you know, you've heard me say this before, that there's a reason why the first commandment is the first commandment. It's not the last commandment. It's the first commandment because that's the central question is who is God to you? And what claim does he make on your life? And if he does, then does he, ha- is it legitimate for him to say, this, what, this is what your best life looks like? And if you don't put, if God isn't going to be the, fir- the first in your life, if he's not the central in your life, well, then you're going to look at his word as maybe something that would be sort of like, well, there's a lot of other wisdom words in the, in the world, and so we can, we can put that, the Bible, on the same plane as all the other wisdom uh, writings in the world, and then we can decide how we're going to live. And that's kind of what it comes down to. Now, one of the things that we talked about uh, last week, I put it up on the board to, to help sort of uh, uh, bring some understanding to, at least in my view, what is it that contributes to the spectrum of beliefs within Christendom. In other words, within Christianity, why is it that there are some churches that take a more liberal, open view of many of the things in the Sixth Commandment and in society? And why is it that there are churches that do not? And so what I tried to do was I put it up on the board in terms of looking at it from a conservative biblical perspective as well as from a more liberal biblical perspective. I kept the word biblical in there, all right? Because I don't want to sort of stand up here and say that, well, if you take a liberal view, well, then you're not Christian. If you take a liberal view, then you don't believe in the Bible. Uh, you do, they do believe in the Bible, but there are aspects of that belief in the Bible that are way different than aspects of the belief in the Bible from a conservative perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it, even within Lutheranism in the world, there is that wide spectrum. Now, in our, in our local area, that's best articulated by the differences between where the teachings of the ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is a, lar- a very large Lutheran group in America, and Missouri Synod, which is our uh, church body that we're a part of in terms of that difference. And again, it's not to say that every single individual member of that church body believes every single thing that that church body teaches. All right? It's not to say that. Because I have some really good friends that are ELCA, and they're way more conservative than I am. So sometimes 
the reasons why people are in a particular church body have very little to do with what the church body teaches. And that's a big surprise to most Missouri synods, all right? Most Missouri senators, we think, oh, the reason you're there is because you buy into all the beliefs. That's not true. That's not accurate, okay? But if you do, if you are a part of a church body, an argument could be made that in some way, you're in a, at least a tacit way, you're saying, I agree with those teachings. But, you know, why do people, why, do, why are people part of a church? What, what are some reasons people give for being a part of a church or a church body besides the teaching? Fellowship, yeah. Or maybe that church does a lot in the community. Or maybe they married into it, right? Uh, maybe uh, they're all their relatives. Maybe the town that they live in is that the closest church and maybe the only one is in the LCA church and it's, you know, the Missouri Synod is like 60 miles away. Maybe that's what it is, okay? So again, it's not to say that this is what individuals in that church necessarily believe or teach, but it certainly is to say that the church body itself in its writings and in its publications would certainly say this is what we believe, okay? So what I did, uh, just uh, not to belabor it too much, but what I did on, on page one or page 39, whichever page you're looking at uh, in your guide, is, is what I had up on the board, all right? And so I just wanted to put that down on paper for you so that, uh, that you could, uh, you could uh, look at it, okay? Any thoughts on that? Yes, Yvonne. Can you remind me, what, what was the difference? Context matters on both? Yeah, you notice that, that they both, one of the things they have in, in common is context matters. So when we look at trying to understand the Bible in terms of uh, not just translating, but then interpreting what's being said and its relevancy, all right? From a conservative perspective, we would say context matters from the point of view of saying that it's important to know who was saying it and why was it being said and what was the particular issue that was being addressed, Okay, that's what we would say. Well, that's, they say the same thing. The liberal view says the same thing. So the, it's looked at from that perspective. The difference is, a difference is, is that sometimes what is said about context from more of a liberal perspective is, well, that's what they believed 2,000 years ago, but that's not necessarily relevant for us today. I would say from a... Um, taking a critical, intellectually critical view of the scriptures and looking at it from trying to understand it from what is it saying, there's room for us to do that. The example would be uh, some of the things in the Bible regarding how you should wear your hair, okay? All right, some of that was cultural and some of that fits really great in those days, all right? But for those of us whose hair is getting less and less, in uh, this day and age, there would be some, some, some at least uh, a, a critical question to be asked is how do we apply that to today? So that's, that's an example of where context matters to both, but it's kind of what we do with it is really kind of the difference. Okay? Yes. Just a question. Yes. Let's talk about the Lutheran world. Lutheran world, yes. Okay. We talked a little bit about activist versions of both liberal and conservative mm -hmm. last week. Mm -hmm. I guess you could argue that Wisconsin Senate would be activist on the conservative side. Say that again. Would Wisconsin be 
Wisconsin Synod be activist on the conservative side? Um, it could be. So if you think of church bodies, there's like conservative, liberal, and then there's like really conservative, and there's like really liberal. Okay, so, so there's, there's a wide range of that, all right? Um, Wisconsin Synod, are any of you familiar with Wisconsin Synod? That's like, the, that's a very small, small synod. And kind of their thing is, is that they believe that uh, or hold so high the standard of agreement that we agree in our beliefs and we agree in our practices that if we don't agree, they don't want to give off the impression that we do. And so that translates into we don't worship together. Okay. We wouldn't take communion together and we wouldn't pray together publicly. Okay. And so, so again, that because that's their view is that that would send the wrong message to the world that we agree when in fact on some things we don't agree. Okay. So that would be an example of that. Is there a liberal side of that? Um, ELCA, ELCA has gone pretty far to the left. There are those in ELCA that would say, we still believe in the resurrection. We still believe in the virgin birth. We still believe in the basic tenets of Christianity. Okay? Um, but there are those to the extreme left that have denied all that and have gone extremely, almost to the point where it's hard to call them Lutheran anymore because it, that, that what they stand for isn't even the basic stuff. Okay? Uh, someone else said they're. Yeah. I, I just was going to say the whole praying thing together. My uncle is was my uncles are Wisconsin Synod. So when we have family gatherings, um, we as the Missouri Synod um, children were asked to wait until Uncle Victor started the prayer because then we were praying with them. They weren't praying with us. So it was that ridiculous. <laughs> now. We, we sort of smile about that, don't we? But in some circles, fistfights have been known to start over that very thing. And again, it, 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 it's kind of easy to get a little bit like, oh, who are they? But if you take it out of the, just the practice perspective and put it up in terms of what's the intent? See, the intent there is to do what? Is to not send a message that's not true to not give off an impression that's not accurate, okay? And frankly, the, you know, that's, that's one of those lines that I think a lot of us in church world struggle with because how much can we join with each other in doing things without sending the message to the world that says we're all the same? And the world would love it if we were all the same, See, the world gets very offended when we say things like, well, the only way to heaven is Jesus. Oh, the world gets hugely offended at that. What do you mean? You're saying that there are some people that don't get to go to heaven? Well, what if they never knew Jesus? So see, it, that there's always that dilemma. There's always that tension between joining with somebody and doing something uh, spiritual or religious without sending the message that the world picks up on and says, oh, you guys are all the same. You guys do believe all the same. Everybody is all going to the same place. There's a contradiction there in terms of what the scriptures say about that and then what the world would say about that. Does that make sense? So 
Yeah, I, I've, I've heard of some of those too. And I did, but, I, but you're the first one that I've ever known who was like scarred by this as an adult. So we should have support groups, right, for that, don't you think? All right, anything else on that before we get into the actual Bible itself? All right. Okay, so again, these are foundational things. And it, it, again, it just helps to take a uh, critical, and I don't mean negative, critical using the word in, in a negative way. I mean in a, a mindful way, a thoughtful way to, uh, to understand why those differences are there. They are fundamental. They are philosophical differences. They are not just simply, oh, I like the red hymnal and you like the blue. That is not what's at stake here, okay? And it's a pretty big deal, all right? Pretty big deal. Because at, at the end of the day, the bigness of the deal has to do with the assurance that God's promises are what they say they are. And if you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that foundation, then you're, you're, you, you don't have much reassurance at all. You don't, you, you're, it's going to be basically self, self-induced assurance. Well, that works great as long as I don't have a headache. But as soon as something goes south in my life, then we're, the assurance goes with it. Okay? So that's why it's a big, it's a big deal. Okay, let's get into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, which has a lot to say about the way that we live our life together and the role that six commandment issues have with it. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the first part of it and then we can kind of go through the notes a little bit and then we can go through the second part of it as well. All right. So Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual lifestyles, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God." Who are the unrighteous? Shall we uh, put everyone's name down here on the board? All right, so let's put it up here. Thank you for volunteering, Victoria. All right, and then we'll put the righteous up here. It's kind of an important question, isn't it? So how do you know you're not, if you wanted to, if you thought that you were among the righteous, how would you know that? I will tell this none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. So what that means is that it takes something else outside of us to make us one of the righteous. And that would be what? Yeah. So when Jesus came to be our savior and do all the things that Jesus did for us, life, death, and resurrection, then he, he uh, gave to us that, that way that we become righteous through faith. So when we have faith in him, we trust in him, what happens is, is that righteousness becomes ours. So yeah, it, it, you can say uh, we're all unrighteous, certainly by nature. 
come into the world unrighteous. But it's by, the, by virtue of what Jesus did for us and, and continues to do for us that that righteousness now is a part, for it, that we are part of that, okay? Now, when Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? The difficulty that we sometimes have with that with respect to the next thing that he says, which is making a list of all these things that we would say, oh, well, if definitely those people are unrighteous, right? We would say that on the base of a list like this. So it's important for us to, to remember that at different points in life, it's very possible that any one of us has either been a part of some of this stuff that he's listed or any of the other lists of sins that are also in other places in the Bible. So that when you think in terms of the difference between a righteous and unrighteous perspective in life, there are some things that are present in the life of the righteous that are not there in the life of the unrighteous. And it's not limited to the particularity of the sin that you commit, but it's more about the attitude that you have toward that sin, right? So that one of the things that's true about the life of the, unright of the righteous is that repentance is a, is a huge part of the life of faith for the righteous person. See, who of us, we may all be righteous because of what Jesus has done for us, right? We hope so. Hope that's the case. But we still what? Sin. Right? We all do. And we do it in our hearts and we do it in our thoughts and we certainly do it in our, in our actions. Well, then why doesn't that qualify for us to be unrighteous? If sin by itself is the culprit and it's only sin as the culprit, then it would seem like every day I'm flipping back and forth between the two, right? So it's not the sin per se. I mean, certainly is, but that's not all it is. It's the attitude that we would have toward that. And that's what comes across in the verbiage that he uses. It's not so much in the English, but it really comes across in the Greek because the Greek has to do with tenses, the, the tense of the verb that's used, all right? And so a way for us to think in terms of what this would look like with respect to fornication, idolatry, adultery, uh, homosexual lifestyle, thievery, covetousness, uh, addiction to uh, uh, substances of some kind, uh, revilers, swindling, all those kinds of things, all right? is that what's characteristic of that in terms of unrighteousness is a couple of different things. Number one is unbelief. Okay? The unrighteous doesn't believe in Jesus and the, the would therefore believe, would not believe that, that Christ has any hold over that person's life. Right? So the motivations for doing whatever they do in terms of the good or the evil is not related to Jesus. It's not related to faith. Okay, that's number one. Number two is there's an intentionality involved in the nature of the sin where that person is drawn to that as opposed to drawn to living for Jesus every day. Does that make sense, the difference? Okay. Number three there certainly is a lack of 
or the feeling that I don't really need to be repentant. Why would I be repentant when what I'm doing isn't wrong? Why would I be repentant when what I'm doing is natural for me and it makes sense to me? So therefore that's going to be a big part of my life. All right. And then continual here. So there's a, there's a kind of a dedication to that, if you will. And then the, the last one is teaching others or influencing others that it's okay. See, th- when these things are present here, that keeps me there. Whereas over here, could I be doing some of the same things over here as a Christian? Yeah, but my attitude, this attitude is not going to be present. Over here, it's going to be struggle, right? And we see that particularly in some of these things that involve addictions, or I mentioned last week with respect to uh, those that struggle in homosexual lifestyles, uh, this thing called same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction is a real thing inside of somebody, But just because someone has that does not mean that they have to give in to the lifestyle of it. There is that choice to be made in terms of the the actions of it or the lifestyle of it, even if the uh, orientation of it is is part of who they are. Yeah. So uh, is it possible for people that have same-sex attraction to just be really close friends with each other if they're going to try to abstain from sex with each other, you know? And would that be an okay relationship? It, it is as long as the person who has that attraction is working on it, okay? So if I'm in a, if I'm in a group for that, and the group is a healthy, good group, okay? It's in fact important to do that because one of the things that gets skewed in same-sex attraction, uh, that arena, is that how do you do, how do, you do same-sex friendships without it becoming something that turns into my, my addiction? But that takes a while, to, it takes a while to get there. That, that's not ever something that we would say immediately, Okay. But, but over time, with work, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In, in the five temptation, what do you just want to stay away from that? I mean, why are you subjecting yourself to that if you know that you're already fighting that temptation anyway? Yeah, and I would say each individual... Acquaintances, but let's put a separation between the friendship and... That's a tough thing. Again, we would sort of argue that friendship is a good thing. Healthy friendship is a good thing, Right. I mean, that's a good thing. And so to say that, well, you should never go to that point where you would have that friendship, I would sort of argue and say, let's see what it takes for you to get to that place where you can do that. And that might mean that you have to put some real tight boundaries around uh, who you choose to be that friend so that that can stay healthy and godly and it can stay protective of what it is you're trying to accomplish. Okay. So I hear what you're saying. And I would say that initially that might be what you have to do. But again, there are some, there are some really great support networks here, even here in DFW 
where um, if somebody is really struggling with this and they're Christian and maybe they're married and maybe they have kids and maybe there's all kinds of stuff that we would say, oh, that's like normal, right? But we're talking about what's going on inside that person's heart and inside that person's chemistry. There are some really terrific networks of support for that person who really as a Christian is seeking to be over here but obviously the temptation is to be over here. And you, if you have that temptation or if somebody has that temptation um, from a same-sex attraction perspective, they can't beat it alone. It's too powerful. So they have to have an accountability around them that's going to help that, right? And that would include some very healthy, godly friendships in the sense of of, of having somebody that I can have a safe relationship with and it doesn't turn into something that feeds my addiction. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is a complicated thing, okay? But again, it gets to the idea that just because I do the sin, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm unrighteous, Right? But there certainly is a pull toward that. And the pull toward that is part of that broken sinful, that broken nature that we're born with. We're born broken that way. And because we are, we have a, we have a, a there's a gravity toward sin, right? But that's where Jesus comes in. And see, the power of the gospel, the power of God's grace is strong enough to overcome that. It's just that it doesn't kill it. So we, the struggle is every day. And for some people, the struggle is every hour. And for some people, it's the struggle every minute. And that would be with respect to almost any addiction, not necessarily just a sex addiction or a same-sex uh, addiction. Okay? Thoughts? Yeah, Phil, you had your hand up like a long time ago. Um, just listening to the entire discussion, I realized that all these talking points also can apply to opposite set. <coughs> Attraction. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not just one, one that's correct. in particular. Yeah, no, that's correct. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, it's all a struggle mm -hmm. regardless. Yeah. And again, because society has normalized this now <laughs> and in some sense glorified it, that this is what real love looks like. This is what the best life you could ever have looks like. Think how free you will be. See, I mean, that obviously is attracting a lot of people. And a lot of people say, oh, that would be way better than going through life thinking that there are things you can't do. Yeah. And, and I think in a way, because we take same-sex attraction as such a taboo subject inside the church, mm -hmm. that it, it becomes off-putting for somebody that is struggling with that sure. to even come and approach anyone inside the church that, uh, in order to like, just talk about it even begin to talk about it. Totally, yeah. And so they look elsewhere. Yeah, and so I would say the good news is is that there are people that people can talk to, and that's the good news. And so if any of you have anybody that you know that's struggling with it, let me know. You can talk to me, and I can point you in the direction of people that I trust and that I know are solid righteous Christian people, but they also have that same day-to-day -day struggle. And so that's okay. That's a good thing. Okay.
Yeah, Carl. The other day I was doing a daily devotion and it was about Joseph. And when he was tempted, temptation yeah. falls right in the middle of all of that. When he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, yeah. he screamed out and said, you know, I will sin against you if I do that. I'll sin against Potiphar. But more importantly, I'm sinning directly against my God. Yeah. And uh, that was quite awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. temptation, if you succumb to temptation, and we all do, yeah. we're sinning directly against our God. Yeah. The, you know what's incredible about that is if look, look again at verse 11, the first part of that where Paul says, some such were some of you. What's he saying about the people that he's writing to? He said, there was a time in y'all's life when y'all were doing that. Now, he's saying that was in the past, but what he's also saying is that person's past does not, God does not hold that against you forever in the sense he would say, well, I'm only going to bring in, into my kingdom or into my family people who never did this, right? That goes back to what we talked about last week with respect to the woman that was so-called caught in adultery, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't turn his back on her and say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with her because look at her past, Right? Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to hold this against you forever. But then he also said, what? Yeah, go and don't keep doing this. See, because the more you do it, the more that pulls you away from God. And that puts you in a position where maybe you get to a point in your life where you say, I don't ever need God. Why would I even go to God? Right? Yeah. Well, and he also said, those of you who are innocent, who haven't done any of that, cast the first stone. Yeah. And none of them threw one. Yeah. So I think it puts everybody in that same category. Sure. It's like, you can't say, oh, well, I'm not in there. I'm yeah. not in this category. Yeah. That when you look at verse 11, to me what it says, instead of it says, I, I kind of took out where it says, but, and I put Jesus. So mm -hmm. it says, Jesus washed, Jesus sanctified, Jesus justified. Mm -hmm. So because Jesus did all this, everything up above it mm -hmm. is washed away clean. Right. And so, so think of the, think of the life that that provides for you. If you begin each day and you end each day, with the reassurance of knowing that everything that you did in between the beginning and the end is what is washed, sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus. You can sleep at night then, right? You, you can go through your day with having that assurance of knowing that, that, that Jesus has taken care of those things for you. And so since he has, I'm moving in this direction. I'm, I'm going to give this up. I'm not going to give in to the temptation. I'm going to seek out those who will say that to me. And see, that's the benefit, I think, of a, of a, of a godly approach to this in an accountability sort of way. That words of encouragement are given. And words of, of empathy are given, but words of forgiveness are given and words of, of cheerleading and kind of all those things that it takes to with, withhold from yourself that which brings great self-gratification. And that's a tough, tough, tough thing to try to overcome. But it's doable, okay? People do it. 
And they do it by the grace of God and with the grace of, uh, of God's power. Yeah. Hey, did you, did you say something? And he only had to do it once. He, he, Jesus oh. only, he only did it. He only had to do it once. Yeah. He died on the cross. Because I think sometimes I'll be like, God, I did it again. But, you know, I've done this again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we're... Yeah. That, okay, he's going to have to do it again. Sure. He did it once, and that washed away the past mm-hmm. and the future sure. of what we do. Sure. We just have to be repentant of it. And yeah. Accept that we're going to struggle with it. Sure. But, we're still, he's, still, okay. he's taking care of it. So let's go through the words themselves. Okay. So what does he say? Do not be deceived. There is a ton of deception going on in the world today. Right. And so when you think in terms of the way in which people can be deceived by others, or we actually can deceive yourselves. Okay. Truth, truth here, truth or dare. How many of you are susceptible to believing your own BS? right yeah absolutely we can right I mean that is the hardest thing to deny is the truth of my own lies right I mean come on all right so some of the different ways that we do that is we justify our sin so we say things like well this is natural for me Now, it's very interesting in the community of LGBT where there is an attempt to theologize that. Okay? This is what's being said. This is natural. And because God made me the way I am, this is the way I should live my life. Okay? It's natural for me. Or people will say, well, you know, I'm the kind of person who... I'm just, you know, I'm German. What do you expect? (laughs) I mean, that's what we say, right? And when we do that, then we're justifying the very thing that we're doing, even if what we're doing is clearly taking us down a path that takes us away from intimacy with Jesus. Okay? Second one. We attempt to normalize it. That's another way to do self-deception. We just say, well, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes, right? We say that. And usually, again, when we say these things in justifying ways, we have absolutely no intent of changing. Correct? Yeah, because that would be way too much work. Then number three, we are deceived when we define sin no longer as sin, but we call it something else. Uh, You make poor choices. uh, You're being inappropriate. Okay. These are all kind of psych words that we've uh, come to uh, get to where we use. But we don't think of it as something that distances me from Jesus. Now, again, Jesus is always pursuing us, is he not? And by nature, by nature, our instinct is to distance ourselves from him. But that's where the power of God's grace comes in. The power of God's grace draws us to him. And as we are drawn to him, what we hope is that we see the folly of the unrighteous life and we see the beauty of the righteous life. But is it a struggle? Yeah, every single day, every single day. Okay, second part. He talks about uh, fornication or fornicators. This is a word that he uses to describe sex between unmarried people, and it's often uh, translated as sexually immoral. 
Okay, that's just a Greek word there. Idolater, that's kind of easy to probably uh, identify in terms of the worship of self or the worship of something other than God. Okay, now the next two go together. They go together. The Malakos word, which is translated here, this is the NIV, translates it as effeminate. And then the arsenokates is uh is translated as homosexual, again, not in orientation, not in um, same-sex attraction, but the acting out of, okay? So there's a separation here between orientation and what you do in it, okay? And the reason why these two go together, and what's interesting to me is uh, in, in looking at the Greek language, this is the only place where these two are put together like this, all right? And so the malakos has to do with the person in the homosexual relationship who is the receiver, is not the, is the passive partner, if you will, right? And the, the other person is the one who is the initiator. So he's talking here about the relationship and in particular, the sexual aspect of the relationship. It's not limited to the sexual aspect, but that's what he's talking about here. Does that make sense? So I was... Uh, listening to a, not listening to, I was reading a, some literature that's coming out of uh, kind of, we, we could sort of call it the gay re- revisionist theology. Okay. And that's a way of describing the, uh, the theolo- theologizing of the LBGT approach. Okay. Is what, and this was where that context matters kind of question has come up. All right is the, uh, the, what's being said or what's being taught is, is that, that uh, Greek word arsenikotes, right? Because that's the, this is the only place in the Bible where that word is used. The, the, what's being taught is, is that because that's the only place where it's being used, then, then Paul must not have been talking about homosexual relationships, he, uh, it committed uh, homosexual relationships. He must have been talking about promiscuity. Now, isn't that interesting? Okay. See, again, they're studying the word, right? They're looking at the actual words themselves, the Greek language, but it's the taking of that and making assumptions about it to make the case for the position that's already been decided upon, right? And so that's where we have to have discerning minds about this. We have to have discerning thoughts about this to be able to hear what's actually being said, to actually hear what's being taught so that we can say, wait a minute, that's, that's your opinion, but that, that opinion doesn't necessarily make it so, okay? It, you tracking with me on this a little bit? Okay, good. All right. So then he goes from there into other things that we would also say, hey, you know, any one of us could have been there uh, and maybe even struggle with it. So you get into thievery and, and being covetous, drunkards and revilers. What are revilers? Do you know, anybody know any revilers? Anybody know any revilers? What does anybody have a history of reviling in their life? Yeah. Yeah, I can remember in college, let me tell you. In fact, um, sometimes 
uh, drinking alcohol ups the likelihood of uh, reviling, okay? Uh, swindling, cheating people for your own gain, right? All right, but notice again, where, where's, where's, where's the end point of this discussion? What does he say? But, but that this is the one time when that word but is the, the absolutely best word to put in there, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified. Clear reference to what? Baptism, right? Remember in your baptism, what is it that God said about you? Same thing he said about Jesus. You are my child whom I love with you I am. Oh yeah, and well pleased. Right? Absolutely. And see, what does he do? why does he point us back to our baptism? Because in our baptism, that's when Jesus said all those things to us, and he put those things in us, and the power of that is what enables us to, to move away from the unrighteous life into the righteous life, and to stay there. Easy? No, not easy. Because Paul himself says in Romans what? He says, I don't understand myself. The, all the good things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And all the bad things I know I'm not supposed to do, I keep doing them. Right? That's the everyday life for us. But what makes it possible for us to do that is the fact that we know that we're loved by God. We are his beloved. And that every single day his mercies are new for us. And those mercies extend to people that, ha that have no addictions, and it extends to people that have lots of addictions. And most of us have at least one. Okay? So that's where he's, that's where he's coming from. Now, when my life is the Jesus-oriented life, if you want to think of it that way, how does that change or how does that affect my perspective toward not only my, my soul and my spirit, but also my whole self. And that's where he gets into the next part. Okay. He, and, and, uh, would somebody read that out loud, please? The next part. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. Yet the body. Yeah. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is the one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. Thank you very much. When God is the center of my life and I'm drawing on the power of Jesus every single day, it changes the way that I view my soul, my spirit, and even my very body. Now that is a direct contradiction to the Greek view. And remember Paul's operating out of a, 
uh, uh, talking in a Greek culture, okay, the Greeks believed in a, uh, a concept called dualism. And what dualism taught basically, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on dualism, but I can give you the basic tenet of it, is that everything having to do with matter and your body is matter is, is, uh, is evil or is at least irrelevant. Everything having to do with mind or spirit is good. All right. And so the idea from the Greek point of view was, was that it doesn't really matter what you do with your body as long as you keep your mind and your spirit pure. So if you want to give yourself to gluttony, go for it. If you want to give yourself to a prostitute in, temp, in temple prostitution, go for it. If you want to uh, live your life in such a way that um, it's all about the pleasures of life for your body, go for it because, because the two are separate. It doesn't matter. What Paul is saying is it's all connected. Your mind, your body, your spirit, all of that is part of God's redemption. It does matter because it's all connected, he says. So he says the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Now, why would it be for the Lord? He's the one that made us. What if I don't believe he made us, but I have evolved would that make a difference? Could that make a difference in my perspective toward the body? And certainly the purpose for which the body is created and the purpose for which the body exists in this life. It could. And for many people it does. But he says, no, the body's not made for immorality. It's made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The reference that he makes then to that is the resurrection of Jesus, right? He said, well, God raised, not, when he raised the Lord, he didn't raise only the Lord. He's going to raise us in that bodily resurrection, just as he did Jesus. Now, what if I say the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus did not happen? That's a myth. What if I say that? And many do. Then that affects my perspective toward the body. Yes, I will be only focused on the spirit and the mind. Can you think of any religions today in the world that would say only the spirit and the mind and the soul matter and the body is irrelevant? Have you ever heard of reincarnation? Yeah. What does it teach? That your body and your soul and your spirit are trapped in your body in the current life and if you do your life well enough in the life to come, maybe you'll come back better in a different body. Okay? So you can see where some of that Greek thought has permeated other, uh, other religions as well. So now he goes even further in terms of really elevating the honor that is associated with the body. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, it's not just your soul. It's not just your spirit. It's not like your soul and your spirit are just trapped inside of you and you, and you can't wait to get, uh, to get out of that. It isn't that. The body also is a member of Christ. And so that's why he goes into this example of if somebody gives himself over to prostitution. And temple prostitution was an integral part of Greek and Roman worship. So that was just part of the, of the cult, if you will, that, uh, that some of the folks in Corinth were, were being exposed to. All right? Verse 17, he who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So therefore flee immorality. See, and that's where, as Phil uh, mentioned earlier, 
he's not limiting to that to homosexual immorality. It's heterosexual. It's homosexual. It's, it's all immorality, right? He is saying flee from that. And then he makes an interesting sort of comment about that. He says all the other sins, and he's listed some of them here in the Bible. You know, there's lots of sins listed in the Bible. He says all those others are committed outside of you. But immorality is different. Immorality affects the inside of you. And the sin is not only against other people, but it's also against your very self. Now, in what way could that happen? What, how could immorality affect the inner part of you? Well, if you look at it from an addiction perspective, which I often do, look at it, look at a lot of things from that perspective, that changes your mindset. That changes your focus in life. And the further you get into that addictive process, what happens is nobody else matters. The further you get into it. Because what happens is the only thing that really matters when push comes to shove is to somehow get my next fix, right? To get my next fill. And so that becomes part of the struggle. All right. So that in that sense, you could sort of argue, make the case that immorality as something addictive could in fact do what? Be sin against yourself. Okay. So then he says this interesting statement, which kills me every time I read it. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, what exactly does that mean? What was the role of the temple in the life of Christians or believers? What, did, what, did, what, what was the function of the temple? The place where God was, right? In the Old Testament, all the way, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, the whole thing. So what is he saying about your human body with respect to the idea that that's a temple? That's the temple. What's he saying? God's in you, right? It isn't just in your spirit. It isn't just in your soul. It isn't just in your mind. It's also in your body, all right? Whom you have from God. And that what? You are not your own. And there's the bottom line of the difference between uh, living my life that is, is pulling me away from God and living my life that is directing me toward him. The bottom line is who owns you. And the popular culture today and the society that we live in today, the world we live in today says, I own my body. My body is mine and I can do what I want to with it. And many people do. The problem is, is look where it leads them. See? Now, to some degree, maybe we've all been there. Maybe we've all sort of like danced on that line. Okay? We've danced on that line. And maybe some of us have fallen or tripped over the line and stayed there for a little while. The good news is you can always come back. And see, that's what repentance is. Repentance isn't going through your life and thinking, oh, what a crummy, lousy, wormy person I am. That is not what repentance is. Repentance is acknowledging that I have something that I can't beat by myself. But with the power of God in my life, I can say, I feel bad about that. I feel terrible about that. And I want more for my life, and I can get that through Jesus. 
That's repentance. Does that make sense? And so all of life every day, whether a person has same sex attraction or a person does not have that, all of those struggles are still there. And the good news is God does not hold that against us as if to say, oh, sorry, but you're disqualified. He always seeks to bring us back to him. The best story I can think of to illustrate that is the prodigal son. Because when that son left that house and took his dad's money and said, I wish you were dead. The Bible doesn't articulate what he did other than Jesus says he blew it all in wild living. Now, take your pick. <laughs> take your pick as to how he might have done that, right? And we don't have to stretch our imaginations to imagine what that would have been, right? And yet in the story, what happens? He finally kind of comes back, but even when he came back, he didn't really want to be reinstated as his son. He wanted to be, oh, just give me one, be, let me be one of your servants. But what does the father do? He runs out, he undignifies himself, and he runs out to his son and welcomes him back. And that's the picture that we have to have of this, okay? That keeps us from being all uppity. And thinking, boy, those terrible people that do all that without ever looking at ourselves. Yeah, Debbie. Do what? Well, here's my question. Oh, we'll do it next week. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So when you say that it's true that someone that is homosexual has that within themselves, are you saying that they are born with that? And if they're born with that, then they are a child of God, and how do you reconcile that? Well, I'm not saying that they're born with it. They might be. I think some things are genetically coded, okay? The problem is I can't prove it. I mean, so you're kind of left with how, what do you, how do you make sense of it? Um, some of it, I think, uh, comes out of early life experiences, Okay, I think there are some people that have gone through terrible early life experiences and maybe they, the only comfort they found was in same sex. So, um, but obviously there's a lot of people that maybe experienced terrible early life experiences that didn't become homosexual. So you can't, you know, it, you can say correlation, but you can't say cause. Okay, so it, to me, I don't know the answer to that and I don't think anybody does. I, I think that those people that I've talked to who struggle with that, they, what they describe it as, it, this is something that's always been there. But I don't know how far back always goes. Because always usually goes back as far as they can remember or as they know. I've also talked to a lot of parents whose children have come out, so to speak. And they will say, I saw something different in that child from day one. And I'm not about to deny that. Okay, so so that's why I think it's important to distinguish between the what, what, what kind of what we call orientation, if you will. That's kind of the word that everybody uses and what I do with it, how I live it, because by the same token, you can have somebody that's drawn to the opposite sex who can easily get uh, drawn to a very immoral life as well. And so we kind of have to distinguish between how, the, what is in that person that you would say how that person is and what is in that person in terms of what that person does. Okay.
But, uh, you know, maybe someday somebody will definitively be able to say this is where that comes from. I just don't know that any of us could say that right now. Okay? Okay, guess what? We're at the end, and I have to run to church. I'm working late service. So, fun time is over. Got to go to work. All right. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us. It it really speaks wisdom to us in today's uh, climate. But it's also a word that speaks to each of us. It, 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 it nails us where we need to be nailed. It, it kind of gets at our attitudes as well. We're so grateful for what your son Jesus did for us and the fact that you loved us enough to pursue us even when we were fleeing from you. And so help us, Lord, not to take that for granted. Help us to, to, to uh, a revel, if you will, in the joy of that each and every day. But at the same time, help us be mindful of all the different struggles of the people around us, the people that we know, the people that, that uh, are in our families, the people in our friendships, uh, the people in our church. And, and so help us to, be, to have some empathy for that and help us to be uh, uh, supportive of that person as, uh, as we're each trying to, uh, to live that righteous life for you. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.